Hey everyone, uh, we will start on top of the hour. Welcome. Um, thanks for coming. And if you want in the meantime to check out the paper, I put the um, open access link like from our Google Drive um, in the chat. And on top is the presentation. So um, in the meantime, feel free to check out uh, what we will be talking about today. Thank you. Hi, Diana. Good day to you. <laughs> I know it's not morning for you anymore. So <laughs> how are you today? Uh, to unmute, it's all the way on the bottom right. Uh, there's a little microphone symbol. If you press on that, you should be able to unmute. Diana, can you hear me? Um, if this doesn't work, uh, please, um, if you're at a university, don't use the Wi-Fi. That sometimes works. Okay. Can you now? Uh, yes. Hello. Perfect. Yes. Now. Yes. Uh, the, you <laughs> were on the Wi-Fi. Of the university yes i was on the wi-fi yeah i'm sorry some uh, most universities they block like you can lock in but you cannot hear or speak and, okay uh, okay okay first time i see that but good <laughs> good to know <laughs> so you hear me well i have yes. some noise but this is the laboratory pumps right now unfortunately i have no more quiet oh don't uh, worry about it um we we can hear you well so that's good okay. how are you we still have a few minutes so you can so how, how is this um working exactly the, the, because i guess it's uh, 
discussion. Um, is people asking questions or because I have no real access to the presentation, I don't know, I should follow the slides or... Yeah, so the presentation, if you see for the audience is uh, linked yes. on the top of the room. So above our icons, there's yes. a link that people can click and there's a presentation, but people have, it's not a screen share. So okay. people have to follow along um, on their own pace. So it's really helpful if you refer to on which slide you're on when you switch. Um, okay. And then in general, I will in a few minutes introduce you and ask you a couple of interview questions and then you okay. can uh, present your slides and your work and then we'll open it up for questions. That's how it usually works. but. If you are okay. open to also okay, have okay. questions during the presentation, that's also good. Like whatever you decide is, is good for us. Ah, this, uh, this may be, since in this case, the people should follow the presentation by themselves. It's better if they have questions to ask on the moment, because they some of them might be on the wrong slide or, I guess. Okay, yeah, um, good, perfect. Thanks for doing this, uh, you know, coming on here, making the accounts. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's first experience. <laughs> I hope I will, will be able to, to interact with people as expected. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it will be fun. So just relax. This is, you know, supposed to be fun and, you know, informal and Okay. Meet Frank. Uh, hi, Frank. How are you today? Thanks for coming. Hi, uh, Terina. Hi, Diana. Thanks for coming to uh, share with us your great research. I, I, I'm <laughs> looking at the slides. It's so, so interesting. So I'm really looking forward to yeah, thank. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Um, uh, just uh, uh, out of curiosity, you, 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 you mentioned the background noise is uh, from some equipment in your lab. Uh, uh, yes. It is, well, so I may try to move eventually because I see it's going to be a bit difficult to stay here. No, I'm just curious, what, what, what type of uh, equipment is that, like, making the uh, this, yeah. uh, this, this is a dye pump for a laser. So it's a laser with um, liquid as a medium, and it has a, as a pump. Pumping all the time makes this high-frequency noise. And it's the only equipment running now, but... Um, Normally we have many noisy equipment at the same time. It's quite, um, it can be quite perturbing at moments, but then we just go remotely to the office and run the experiments from, from distance, let's say. Now I'm, I was preparing an experiment, so I was, had to be in place, let's say. But now I, I guess see. it's quiet. It's quieter, I hope, is it? It is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I just worked out. Um, yeah, one minute. 
Okay, perfect. Um, yeah, I think we can we can slowly start. People will will come will come in um, more um, since it's pretty early in the U.S. And you know they, but the good thing is we record this so people can listen to this afterwards uh, for you know on the West Coast and so on. So I think we can just start. So. Welcome everyone to the Science Society and of course a special welcome for um, Diana um, Serrano. Um, thank you so much for coming here today and sharing your really exciting and really interesting research here with us. But before we start, let me introduce you to the audience so they get to know you a little bit. So yeah. Dr. Diana Serrano, she's a researcher at um, CNRS in uh, France and um, she did her um, bachelor in of arts in piano at the High Conservatory of Music um, of Castilla uh, Leon. Uh, right. And <laughs> that's amazing. A friend of mine, he was an our PhD, uh, he um, he did the thing. He, he also uh, was a great musician and then also did his PhD with us. So interesting. <laughs> He's from Montpellier, but anyhow. And um, and then she did um, her five-year degree in physics um, uh, with a master included at the University of Salamanca. And then she did her PhD in physics in optics and material at the center, um, I I can, you know, I'm yeah, French, French. Yeah. at the center, the research, the sur, yes, <laughs> at a, the university in the Normandy, um, can bus, and she, her thesis um, title was quantum cutting processes in rare earth, um, doped um, fluorides for photovoltaic applications under the supervision of Dr. Alain Broad and um, Dr. Richard Monkhoj. And oh, then she... Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> and um, she did her postdoc then at the Lund University in Sweden. And um, then she uh, went to the University of Zurich in Switzerland uh, with Stefan um, Sergers. Um, and then now she is at the CNRS at, uh, in Paris, uh, continuing her research. Um, and it's so uh, interesting that you first um, did a music degree and, and then you went uh, on to do research. So was it always a dream of yours to become a scientist? Or was it something, you know, did something happen when you 
after you finished your piano degree, like a teacher, a class or something that fascinated you that you decided then move on to science? Uh, yes, it's, it's a very good question because uh, many people is puzzled by this maybe a typical path. Uh, the thing is, I started studying music really uh, when I was very young as a child. So it's the kind of thing you start when you are five, six years old. And then by the time it was time to go to university, I was pretty much aware of what being a musician was because I had been doing this for 10 years back then and doing some competitions and taking taking this very seriously, almost professional. While on the science part, I was just a high school, high school student, so I had no idea what to be a scientist, scientist was back then. And, but I was a good student too, too at school, so I couldn't make my mind by 18 when I had to go to university and doing this music degree. And I decided to do both at the same time, and which was quite crazy, I have to say. But when finally I managed to, to survive this double degree simultaneously. And as I progressed on the physics side, I got more into it and I enjoyed more and yeah, somehow I finished and I said, uh, okay, let's take a break on the music for once, for one year first in my life and then just finish the, the physics degree. And it, it all followed, like I, I was proposed to continue on the PhD, then I went on the PhD and it just uh, evolved by itself, let's say. So I didn't make my mind very early about science. It just happened progressively and I guess that was a good choice. Perfect. That's wonderful. Um, do you still play piano a lot or do you still make music? Do you have time? Well, I do it for fun. Of course, I do it in a very, very uh, low rate compared to back in the time. Uh, I, I, I do it really as an amateur, if, if I may say, with a band, a little bit of more jazz music, more than classical as I used to do, but for fun with no pressure, no, I, I really don't have much time, to be honest, to, to keep that at that, the level. But yes, it's wonderful. I think it's good to not burn out, you know, to, oh, yes, <laughs> to, have, to have something else also. That's wonderful. Um, and um, how did you come to then decide um, to work in this field? And is there maybe like a story uh, about this, a specific project was it you know easy to get funding for it or how did you get to work in this project um and yes yeah. so it's a, another interesting question it um it was when i started my first uh, contact with research indeed is when i moved i was finishing my bachelor in salamanca and is when i finished the piano studies i took one year uh, abroad this is very typical in Europe, is this Erasmus program that the European students are going to another university for taking some courses while still enroll in their original university. So as I, it was my first year of freedom, let's say, I, last year of, the, of studies, I went to France, uh, to Normandy, for finishing my studies. And there I was offered to join some practicums in, in the research labs they had there. And then the, the, the lab, I, there were several options like uh, nuclear physics uh, and other fields and twisted physics. And there was a lab doing these uh, photonics uh, projects. Uh, I, I kind of 
like it. And then it was the first time I saw this kind of research because in, in my university in Spain, they had not such topic at all. So I had never seen this in the lab. And then it was uh, first contact for me. I really liked these materials, the, these uh, lanthanides, rare, rare science, and decided to continue with them. But back in the time, I was doing more um, classical applications, let's say, was similar type of materials, but uh, the application was more for photovoltaics, optoelectronics, other kind of, of things. But this quantum field was starting back then. It was still very, very minor uh, when I was doing my PhD. But I already saw it could have a, sorry for the beep, it's still one equipment beeping. I still saw it could have quite some future 10 years ago. And I decided to go on a postdoc and start to look at that in my first postdoc in Sweden. Uh, and then I definitely like it a lot. Uh, so when I finished that postdoc, I moved to Zurich. I did a little bit of medical research to try another medical, it's still a, optical spectroscopy stuff is not like I changed to any medical things, but let's say the final application was medical because it was another field I found interesting. And it was then when I thought like, no, I really like the quantum stuff I did in Sweden. So when I will propose a project to join the CNRS, like I'm now will be on that field. And then it's when, let's say, when I decide what was my, the, the, the field I wanted to work at following these experiences. Well, I'm glad. Yep. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Thank you for that story. And um, I'm so glad you got to work into what you really like and what you're curious about. It's such a... That was very lucky. Yeah, I, I had this opportunity. <laughs> yeah. It's so not always the case. That's for sure. That's, uh, that's wonderful. So congratulations and congratulations to this amazing work. And yeah, the stage is yours now for uh, presenting your really interesting work. So everyone, um, the presentation is pinned on top of the room. Uh, feel free to follow along. And yeah, we're looking forward to it, Diana. Thank you. Uh, yes, uh, so everyone is free to, to ask questions during the presentation. So these slides are actually scientific slides from our conference, let's say. So they can be quite sometimes specialized, so don't worry if you find them difficult. I will really try to avoid the, the too much technical details to, to make it a little bit more, more easy to, to digest. But if I go to something which is not possible to follow, please let me know and I will, I will correct. So let's start. Uh, uh, let's see, I will open the presentation myself to guide. So this presentation is, is related to this uh, paper published in Nature last year that you, you must have on the link. It was a, a research work which uh, attracted quite some attention when it was published. And the reason is because uh, we propose a new material system for, for, for quantum technologies. And this, this material system is the rare molecular crystals. So those materials aren't new in themselves. Uh, so they have been used for other goals. Uh, they are known from the 60s, but they have never been looked at in this quantum uh, applications perspective. And when you look at quantum applications perspectives, there are several aspects you have to really prove uh, valid to say, okay, this is a good material for quantum hardware. 
So in my slide uh, number number two, I I what I present is what are the requirements for quantum hardware. So when you are a scientist uh, trying to develop materials for quantum computers, uh, quantum repeaters, and all these kind of applications, there are four elements you have to take into account. That is the ideal, let's say, wish list. The first one is you would like to have a system where you can store quantum states. And these quantum states is two level systems. That's what I represent. So those are the two quantum information unit states, the zero and one. And we want to be able to create superpositions on these uh, on these states. And this is what we call the long coherence time or long T2 in the, in the specialized field. So it's uh, that those are very often uh, spin states is what I represent by, by this symbol of a, a ball with an arrow that represents a spin, but can be also optical states. So it's any two level system where we can create superposition state and that this superposition state can live for a long time would be in principle valid for quantum applications. So the next point, if you move to the next uh, slide, is that we want our quantum states to be able to interact with each other because we want to create quantum gates. So if we want to do computing, um, we'll need to do some, some interactions between the, the quantum information units. A third criteria is if we want to connect our quantum processing units with each other, we'll need some kind of optical interface because quantum communications come through light, just as classical communications. So we have these optical fibers connecting our computers around the world. So for the quantum computing distribution is going to be the same. So we need a system which can interact with light, but in the quantum regime. And the fourth um, criteria is that if we want to do all these uh, quantum state preparation, interactions, gates, and read out in a very efficient way, we are going to need some sort of uh, photonic structure. Uh, that enhance the light matter interactions. That's what I mean by integration. I'm right now at uh, slide number five. So these are our four uh, criteria. But in practice, to have a material system with which verifies all of these criteria at the same time is very difficult. And the proof is that uh, nowadays research on this field is um, looking at different solid state systems like diamond, the quantum dots, those materials, rare materials I work with, but there is not the perfect one. They all have advantages, but also have things missing on this list. So that's why uh, I guess uh, most of researchers in the field for a few years now realize that it may be a good idea to start combining material platforms, trying to merge the, the, the advantages of, of of several systems together, trying to go as close as possible as to this list I, I just presented of, of characteristics. And this is what this work uh, was about in this, in this paper. So we propose to merge two material platforms. One is uh, what we call the rare, rare crystals for quantum technologies, and the other one is the molecules. So these two material platforms um, at slide uh, number seven right now, the presentation, are investigated uh, individually. Like every one of them have enough uh, interest to be looked at individually. But what we thought is if we can combine them, 
that may be even more interesting and we could be able to, to have even better properties uh, for the final application. So concerning the rare science, uh, this is my field, so my background field. I've been working with the rare science lab for, for many years. So they are uh, investigated in the context of quantum technologies because they can create these quantum states or they can create, we can create quantum states on rare uh, systems on both on the spin states and also on the optical states. But this always happens at very low temperature. This is, let's say, a, a bit of a drawback of these materials, but uh, the, the quantum states are so because there is a little bit of noise. Uh, there is no teaching room here, I'm sorry. What are you looking for? Uh, yep. Sorry, sorry for the interruption. So <laughs> I said, is that we can create quantum states that are extremely, extremely long-lived. So they have the, the absolute record of uh, live quantum states, the rare crystals. And in particular, we have uh, a paper from a few years now, which demonstrated that in a rare crystal, we can create quantum states which can live as long as six hours. So this is an absolute record. They also have the advantage of present uh, optical access. So if you remember my list before, I said we want to create quantum states. So this we can do in the rush crystal. So we need to interface our system with photons, with the light. And with rare material, this is also possible. So we have lots of uh, optical transitions in the rare clients. And they cover several wavelengths also from the visible to the infrared. And this includes uh, a transition, which is the same we use currently for telecommunications, which happens at 1.5 micrometers. And uh, well, more, let's say, is not as important as the two previous points I, I mentioned, but not an interesting is that those sensors are very, very stable, so they don't bleach. We can use them again and again and again, and the, the material remains very, very stable. So there is, it's not, uh, let's say, it's uh, degradation on time is negligible, which is not the case with other emission centers. They have, however, uh, I would say a difficulty. So all the people working with rare science face a main difficulty is that those centers do not emit too much light. So they emit uh, with a rate which is low and it m makes working with single rare ions quite difficult because a, a single rare ion emits few photons per second. And even with the best detectors we have nowadays in the market, that can be very challenging if we really want to use uh, these uh, for, for a real application. However, to really uh, overcome this difficulty, there's a lot of work on integrating the rare crystals with photonic resonators. So it's the fourth point I, I mentioned before to be able to enhance these uh, transitions. So the other material system we have here, which before this work, to be honest, I didn't know that much about, it was the molecules. So there's a huge scientific community working with, with molecules for quantum uh, computing, quantum communications. So the molecules, uh, we can, I divide them in this presentation in two types. We have molecules which have a spin state. So quantum state, it's states in the spin levels, which can be very long lived. And other molecules which have optical transitions, which are basically the organic molecules. But uh, they don't have both at the same time. So while the rare ions, we can have at the same time, optical transitions and spin transitions, the molecules 
typically we are, we are going to have one or the other one. So this is not so good in that sense. However, they have other advantages, of course, that's why we, we are interested uh, to them. The production, the way we synthesize this kind of molecular material is much less uh, heavy, so to say. When we do rare crystals, we do this at super high temperatures in a melt at around 2,400 degrees. It's growth, crystal growth. We take many, many days, even up to months, depending on the size of the crystal. Uh, it's high cost also, they cost a lot of money to be produced and um, they have also the point that when we put our rare files within the crystal, they are randomly positioned, especially, let's say, we have some doping, doping level, but we don't know where the ions are with respect to each other. While in the molecular materials, we have way more control and flexibility to really do a material, a custom material, where we do a single layer of molecules, where we know at which distance they are located with respect to each other, uh, where we know, uh, for instance, which are, which are the ligands, the exact atoms around our, our active ions and so. So this is all around the chemical engineering and gives much more possibilities to customize your, your material really and its spatial location. So this is, of course, of great interest if you want to do a quantum processor where you want to control the distances between your, your qubits or your quantum information units. So the, our, uh, our idea here then was, okay, then let's take a rare ion with, with all the good properties a rare ion can have and let's put it on a molecule, in the center of a molecular structure. So that's what we did. And then the molecule we are going to present uh, was synthesized with the root is presented in slide number 12. So it's, it's a molecule which has a single rare ion in the center and is coordinated by oxygen atoms and uh, aromatic rings, carbon rings around. It's pretty classical structure for, for, for molecules. And it crystallizes actually, so it forms a, a solid state material, can crystallize. So the crystal structure is shown in figure in slide 13. So it, it has a crystal phase we call monoclinic within the crystal uh, crystalline structures. And the European ions occupy a, a site within this crystal of, of a symmetry we call C2V. So it's important to know that the rare ions, uh, they have in particular European has to be at a pretty low symmetry. So it means that the surrounding of the ion has to be a relatively low symmetry to be able to emit light. If it has a very organized structure around it, it will not emit light at all because of some what we said, the transition rules and they are forbidden. But when we have this relatively low symmetry, it emits lights. So this is some, a concern every time we, we put rare ions in a material. So in this case, there is no, no problem. We have a symmetry which is low enough. And then you see what our material looks like. So it's a, it's a network of molecules, uh, totally organized. And in the distance, the minimum distance between uh, two European ions from molecule to molecule is around 10, 10 Armstrong. So that's pretty good. So this is a distance which is good to have this kind of quantum gates we are, we are aiming at, but it's not too short because having too short uh, distances can also be a problem because the ions tend to perturbate each other and that can really limit your applications too. So 10 Armstrong is a good compromise, let's say. Uh, 
So what we did, this material, uh, it was inspired, this synthesis was inspired from a synthesis uh, done in the 60s. So it was done by collaborators uh, of us, which are currently in Germany. But we didn't know much about this compound. So we didn't know where the optical transition was, what was the lifetime of, of the levels. We basically had to study everything from scratch. So we started by studying the luminescence properties of this material. So what you see in slide number 14 is a typical emission spectrum. So emission spectrum from Europium. And uh, we recognize the lines. We can attribute the transitions of these lines and the, the, the small transition, which is shown in red, uh, which is uh, actually very small compared to all the other ones, is the one we would really want to exploit for for quantum uh, applications. Then you see that the centers are really stable. As I mentioned, rare ions are expected to be very stable. So that's the photostability measurements shown also in, in slide number 14. And if we zoom now on the transition, in, in we, we want to look at, we want to use to store quantum states. This one is shown in uh, slide 15. Is the is the European 5DO sense FO transition? Uh, the peak wavelength is 580 uh, nanometers. So this was something we had to to find out to ourselves. We didn't really know exactly what it was. And a parameter in we always look at when evaluating the potential of a material for for these applications is the width of the transition. So the width is shown here in this slide is six gigahertz. And this is basically the bandwidth for quantum storage you are going to be able to use in the end. So in this case, is, uh, is uh, what we normally find in rare materials of this order of magnitude. Something, however, which is also interesting is when the lines are too broad, this indicates the quality of your material is not so good. It means there's a lot of defects which are provoking a lot of inhomogeneity in your material. And this is not the case here. So this is shows that the, the molecular crystal is a very high crystalline quality. So something else uh, I show in the slide number 16 is the population lifetime for the optical level. So there's 540 microseconds. And this is a value which is important to have in mind because it establishes the upper limits to the quantum storage. So the quantum storage on a transition can never be longer than the population lifetime. And so let's say this is our upper limit, which is uh, something completely okay, let's say, to, to do a lot of, a lot of things yeah, in this field. So if we move now to the section number three, which is the really quantum properties of the material. So far it was just yes, preliminary properties. When we want to prove that the material can be used for photonic quantum technologies, we need to measure the lifetime of the quantum states. This means we need to create superposition states in our transition and then measure how long these superposition states can live. And we do this by a specific technique uh, we call the photon echoes. So this technique is very, very similar to a different spectroscopic technique used in magnetic resonance. So it's called the Han echoes. So even when you go to the doctor and do magnetic resonances, you are using this kind of sequences uh, in your medical studies. It's something quite surprising for some people, but uh, it can be used also in the optical domain. 
and it can be used to measure quantum states as, as surprising as that can seem. So this is what we did uh, in our lab. So in the slide number 18, you see what is the decay of the quantum state lifetime done using this, uh, this technique. In this technique, what we do is we increase the, the, the time we wait between these different light pulses. So it's basically a light, uh, a sequence of light pulses. And we separate these pulses more and more. And the more we separate it, the, the less uh, signal we get in the end. And this is because our quantum state is decaying. So by fitting uh, this decay, which is a typical exponential fit, nothing very, very difficult to, to evaluate, uh, we obtain a quantum state lifetime of the order of 10 microseconds. So you can see that even when our upper limit, ideal limit was 500 microseconds, the actual lifetime of the quantum states in the optical domain in this material are 10 microseconds. This is nothing very surprising, it's often the case. And this is because we have mechanisms around our ions which are limiting the lifetime of the quantum states. And this is because the ions are surrounded by other atoms, which are having, creating sort of electrical and magnetic perturbations and that do not let the quantum state to, to live as long as could if it was up to the population lifetime. So in slide uh, 20, uh, I show you a, an important uh, figure of merit uh, for these applications is we always going to compare uh, the line width of the transition of the ensemble of ions in the material. And this was this six gigahertz I showed you before. So it's the bandwidth we can obtain. And we compare this with the line width of an individual atom. And the line width of, a, of an individual atom we can calculate from the lifetime of the quantum states. And this, this ratio in this particular case is of the order of 10 to 10 to the five. And this is the number of qubits of quantum information units you could create in principle in this material, so which is indeed quite a lot. So, well, I'll next uh, property. This is very technical. Is uh, showing how the how the, the quantum states evolve at very very long times, and this is useful when you look at single ions. So, when you look at single ion, you're following your single ion, but your single ion transition could move with time because of perturbations which are happening at very long time scales. Uh, this phenomenon is called spectral diffusion. And this is also, we also evaluate it. And we, if uh, our quantum states leaves of the order of 10 microseconds, we can still see that there are perturbations at very much longer time scales, like the millisecond, which are provoking some uh, fluctuation of, of the transition. But this remains quite uh, limited in, in this case. So in typical molecules, if we look at uh, organic molecules to compare, uh, this spectral diffusion will be uh, about 1,000 times more than what we observe in these rare ions. So this also proves that the idea of putting the rare ion in the molecular environment has advantages with respect to looking to a traditional molecule like organic molecules. So I move now to, to slide uh, number 24. And what uh, I present in this section, I call the spin structure, is the other property of the rare ions we want to look. So at the beginning in my introduction, I mentioned that one of the important points of rare materials is that, is that we can have 
quantum states in the optical domain and also spin states, or spin quantum states simultaneously. So what which makes this uh, materials quite unique. But in this new material, this molecular crystal, we we knew we will have spin states, but once again, we didn't know which were the transitions, where in which energy were the spin transitions. So we had to first probe the material to identify what we call the hyperfine structure or the spin structure. So we did this by another spectroscopic technique quite specific to, it's called spectral hole burning. And I'm not gonna go into the details of this technique, but this basically, uh, the take home message is uh, this technique allows to manipulate the ground state population. As you see in my scheme, you see that there are several sub-levels which what I represent by the small balls that are equally populated. And with this technique, we are gonna be able to remove population from one of them and store it in the others. So that's what we call the spectral hole, is this absence of population in a particular level. And when we do this, uh, and we analyze uh, what, when we send light through this system, once we have done this uh, ground state population manipulation, we see a very characteristic spectrum, which is shown in uh, figure 26. And from this kind of spectrum, we can uh, deduce what the hyperfine structure is. So what's the energy of the hyperfine transitions? So I move quickly into this. So you, we have some peaks we call the holes and side holes, another peaks which call the anti-holes. I'm on slide 28. And by knowing where those peaks are positioned in frequency, so you see the scale of my figure is, is frequency in megahertz, we can resolve the hyperfine structure. So the, the hyperfine structure we find from this analysis is shown in figure 29. So you see we have two ground state transition, one at 21.5 megahertz, another at 34 megahertz, and two excited state transitions, one at 46 megahertz, another one at 37.9 megahertz. To prove that our estimation is correct, so we did a simulation in red uh, in the slide number 29. You have a simulation of the spectral hole burning spectrum and you see that the agreement is very good. So it really seems that this is the actual hyperfine structure we have. Uh, we can also evaluate the strength of these transitions. Um, this is based on the, 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 the intensity of the peaks we have in the spectrum. And this is given in a table. So the table is shown in figure in slide 30, shows the strength of the different uh, transitions from the ground state levels and excited state levels. So those transitions are, are not equal. So you, there are stronger ones and weaker ones. And this is also an important information later for, uh, for quantum storage, because we are gonna take advantage of the stronger transitions. Uh, something else uh, we can do with this technique of spectral hole burning is evaluating the population lifetime for the spin states this time. So before I show you the population lifetime for the optical states, and now it's for the ground, ground uh, spin state. So we do this by looking at how long time take this population to go back to initial level. So we start having all ground state sub-levels populated, then we redistribute the population until we have this spectral hole and we wait. And when we wait at some time, we see that the, the ions decay back to the initial position. And by looking the, at this at different times, that's what uh, it, it shows in uh, slide 31, then we see how the, the spin population relaxes and gives us the population lifetime. 
So in this case, we see a, a behavior, dynamic behavior, which is pretty complex with different uh, components. That, that's why the figure has different slopes in time. And we found the shortest uh, component is five minutes. This means, uh, sorry, the shortest component is 430 milliseconds. Uh, this means that if we put ions in a different ground state level, they can stay there for 430 milliseconds. So you see, this is uh, much, 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 much longer than in the optical states. And this is why the spin states are the ones we really want to use in, in the end for, for quantum storage. So basically what we want is to get the optical quantum states into the optical transition and then transfer it down to the spin states so that it can stay much longer than that. Uh, something we also show once we had all these ingredients that we know what our hyperfine structure is, how long-lived it is, which is our optical properties and so on. So it's what I show in figure 32. So we did a, what we call a population initialization. So with, with optical pumping, we could remove ions from two frequencies. And this is the very two big peaks we show in figure 32, we have a, a figure of initialization where there are two deep holes. And this is because all the population is being transferred to the third level in the, in the structure. And this is actually the starting point when you want to do quantum storage. You need to be able to remove your population from two states and to put it on the third one to start. And this may seem trivial, but it's not uh, in practice because this can only be possible if the lifetime of the spin states is long, as we have proved in the previous experiment. So to finish, I, I will end up with the most fun part of, for me at least, of the presentation is that now, okay, we have proposed a material which combines two material systems, molecules and rare science. And we have synthesized it, we have characterized it. Now we know a lot of information about it. We have all its uh, identity card, we can start to do some proof of principle of quantum storage, of real quantum storage. So for doing this, we use the one of the most widely used uh, quantum memory protocols in the field, which is called the atomic frequency COM. It's uh, probably quite complicated uh, to to go into details of this protocol, what you you should um, keep in mind about that is what we are gonna do is to manipulate the spin population in a way that we are gonna create a comb on the atoms. So we are having uh, like a, a little bit a little bit difficult to put it in easy words. But um, we are gonna, well, let's say it like that. So we are gonna create a periodic structure which is gonna be our base of, of absorption. And into this periodic structure, we are gonna set our storage input pulse. And then the quantum memory, so this comb is gonna become the quantum memory, is gonna emit, uh, it's gonna emit uh, back a pulse. So in the sequence is shown in, uh, in figure 33, indeed, the quantum memory storage is only the two green pulses in the end, very, very end of the sequence, while all the other things you can see, so what it represents is a pulse sequence, is the preparation of the comp. So I can show you how we do this experimentally. 
so in slide uh, 34 i do uh, really show you that what it looks like experimentally we look at the absorption optical absorption of the transition and we do a big zoom on this absorption so the absorption is a peak but if we zoom into a very small frequency range we are going to see uh, like a flat absorption uh, range what we are going to do next i uh, move to slide uh, 34 35 is to create a big hole, a big spectral hole. So the big spectral hole is shown in uh, slide 36. And this big spectral, spectral hole is gonna create a big anti-hole, which is what it is indicated on the, on the red, uh, red uh, highlighted area. And it is there precisely on slide uh, 37 that we are gonna send our comb creation and the, the the frequency comb appears on slide 38. So you see this T. So this is a very small comb. It's, uh, we can do much, much bigger. So a big comb with a lot of teeth, and larger space between the teeth. So we did a very, let's say, modest one for this demonstration. Because basically because we don't have the advanced equipment uh, we would need to do a really very big comb. But anyway, the, a comb like this is even enough to really prove that we can do quantum storage in this material. So now we have created our comb in the atoms and uh, this periodic structure is going to absorb my input pulse on slide 39. So we send a, an input pulse uh, to, the, to the comb and we get the output of the memory. So this is shown experimentally on slide 41. So what you see on the right is uh, the input pulse in blue in the dot curve is what's transmitted by the material and the red pulse, which comes uh, after 0.5 uh, microseconds. So a little bit before one microsecond is the output of, of the memory. And this was the first time uh, this uh, storage protocol was applied to a material which was not a bulk crystal. So uh, we have also taken into account that our molecular material is not a nice uh, large scale crystal, it's just a small slab of 500 microns, highly concentrated. So this uh, protocol has been used a lot in other kinds of materials, but have never been applied to such kind of material as we do here. So what uh, I show in slide 42 is that if we change, we modify our comb uh, in the space between the peaks, we can modify the output of the memory. That's what's shown on the slide on the left. So the more space are my peaks, the later comes my, my output of, of memory. So this also further proves that this pulse coming out is out of the atomic frequency comb. And that was basically all I, I wanted to, to show you here today. Uh, a small summary to finish on slide uh, 43 and on. So I have shown you that we have uh, synthesized this compound, uh, which is an, uh, we call in the field stoichiometric isotopically enriched molecular crystal. Stoichiometric means it's uh, fully concentrated in rarest ions and isotopically enriched means that it has only one European isotope. So this is the merit mostly of the chemist, which uh, did the, the material. Then we have measured its uh, optical quantum properties. And this is what's shown here by the optical line width of 30 kilohertz, which is what I mentioned before being 10 microseconds of quantum state lifetime. 
we show that this life that these lines are uh, not fluctuating a lot on time that's what means uh, how they have low spectral diffusion then we study the spin structure with this technique i call the spectral hole burning so we did determine what the spin structure was which were the transition frequencies which was the lifetime of these levels uh, and finally we did some uh, state initialization uh, or spectral tailoring and the atomic frequency comb optical storage and of course all the details are given on, on the on the nature paper so the final slide is a photo of the, the group uh, I work in, in Paris, uh, the names of the people working and the collaborators in this project in Germany. Um, I thank you for, for your attention and welcome your, your questions. Thank you so much for this uh, really interesting presentation and that you explain to us your work. Um, you know, in this detail, but also in a comprehensive way. So it's really um, wonderful. So thank you. And uh, just for people to understand, like, how long did this work take, um, you know, until, <laughs> until the publication yes. came out? Well, it depends a lot. Uh, in this case, I it was about less than one year since the first uh, studies until the um, publication or around one year i would say uh, which is pretty standard but it can be much more sometimes uh, it can be less uh, it was in the middle of the pandemic uh, we did this work so indeed uh, i have to say that uh, we had more time eventually to focus on on this than we would have had with no pandemic uh, because of course many things were cancelled there were no no conferences no no teaching no so many things and it was maybe faster than usual thanks to that I, if i may say thanks to what well, was a terrific period this uh, pandemic but in that sense it, it was a bit helpful for go far faster than than usual, I would say, to do the experiments, then analysis, writing the paper, submission of the paper, uh, revision and publication. Wow, that's uh, that's very impressive. <laughs> I thought it would be kind of longer, but that's really impressive. And also, um, your results are are really good. So, do you, um, you know, in the end, it will be really interesting for quantum computing and. Um, data storage, as you said, um, is this using this? Um, will it use more energy or less energy with uh, what we currently have been trying to develop for quantum uh, computing? And um, um, you know, from the I know, yeah, I don't know. Uh, will it be like more energy? Um, efficient you mean yeah uh, mm -hmm. uh, that's difficult to say because uh, indeed uh, these all all quantum technologies in the long term will work at very low temperatures uh, so the superconducting qubits is, are the ones uh, most at a higher degree of development working these huge uh, cryostats and these systems, uh, maybe not such a huge crystal, but still in, in, in also cold temperatures. And in that sense, 
they would have some uh, some energy consumption. We are definitely quantum technologies. Unfortunately, we are not about green green technologies. Um, but the idea is is that um, we we are having uh, devices which are going to be so technologically advanced. We are not aiming at having like a, a lot of them. Like it's not like everyone will have quantum computer at home. No, it's not, I would say, it, that's not what's, what, what's the goal, is we'll have few maybe, but we'll be extremely, extremely efficient and we'll be able to do things and simulations and, and um, maybe calculations to develop new medicines and so. But we'll be few, few workstations, so will be expensive, will be time uh, energy consuming, but that will be important for society anyway. It's like when we go to the hospital and we take uh, magnetic resonance because we have an injury. This system is very, very high energy consumption and then has liquid helium and it's costly, but it's very important for our health. So, but of course we don't have a magnetic resonance at home. There is the hospitals which have one of them. So I think quantum technologies are a little bit like that. And in this case, uh, the We'll see. It's difficult to say. I, I cannot really advance in terms of energy waste, to be honest, compared to what we have currently. I don't think it will be worse, but I cannot promise it will be better either. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, it wasn't It wasn't meant to be a criticism or so, but maybe, you know. No, no, I, I understood. This is a completely legitimate question and it's an important question to think about this. Um, yeah, and um, I wanted to give Frank, an uh, opportunity to ask a question, so please go ahead. Oh, sure. Thanks, uh, Katrina. Thanks, uh, Diana. This is a very uh, uh, dense for uh, uh, hobbies yes. <laughs> like you know, physics. So, but uh, definitely congratulations on this uh, amazing results. And uh, I, I think the idea of combining two uh, systems that each have uh, distinct, unique uh, advantages are uh, quite, uh, you know, and he, he, actually the team can carry through. So it's definitely a, a, a triumph, you know, effort. So you did it in one year. That's just amazing, right? So, um, so quick question on the, uh, just, uh, I, I guess I have so many, but uh, <laughs> limited by time. Yes. But uh, uh, in terms of education, that, uh, so uh, you, you mentioned that, uh, seem, seem, I mean, what comes to my interest is the regarding the density part. So you mentioned the uh, high density of qubits will be an advantage but, uh, mm -hmm. uh, to have. Mm -hmm. However, it also yes. somehow uh, comes with a challenge that create uh, bring in noise that reduce the lifetimes, isn't it? Or, exactly, so exactly, you, exactly, yeah. You, you, are, you are comparing essentially the, uh, I, I assume that the that the, the one on the left, i.e. the rare earth crystals, they are uh, traditionally by cr uh, bulk crystal, right? So in that sense, it, it, the cr meaning crystal, uh, by crystal we usually means that uh, it's very orderly and, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, well controlled. So yeah, uh, just, just to well, get your insight. Exactly, yeah. that's, that's, that's the point of the, the bulk. Earth crystals, they are very well organized, the atoms inside, but the rare ions are a dope band there. It's not, the, it's not ions, uh, not lattice ions, let's say, they come in a small amount to replace other ions which are in the crystal. And by doing so, they end up being located randomly. 
So to say a typical rare crystal would be doped with rares of 1% or 0.5%, it means you have one rare and then the next one is somewhere else. Uh, but uh, you can you have no no deterministic control about where the ions are with respect to each other. And there is some initiatives to try to work on that, like uh, what they call ion implantation. So instead of doping, what they are going to do is irradiate the crystals so that they can put the ions in particular locations. But afterwards, there are some uh, high temperature treatments done to the crystals and the ions diffuse. So the spatial deterministic localization is quite a big, uh, big deal in these materials and very often we work at extremely dilute media so big 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 distance between the rare finds and um, basically because as soon as we start to concentrate a bit we have this quenching of this noise which which appears um, but in the case of the molecules uh, it's uh, more i mean i would i wouldn't say i wouldn't dare to say straightforward to locate them but it's, uh, there is more more resources to manipulate these materials and to create, let's say, 2D layers or or play more a bit. If you change your ligands, maybe you just can tune a little bit and instead of having 10 Armstrongs, you may have a little bit less or a little bit more. There's more tunability, which in the case of the bulk crystals is really is really not there, let's say. I don't know if this answers your, your question. Yeah, so, uh, sure. So, in your form that uh, we are looking at, your your uh, the the uh, samples you're you're working with that that you're able to is it two di two dimensional like uh, materials like uh, or, they they are they they are micro crystals so they they have well they, they there are several sizes in the we obtain the, the sample in the form of a kind of powder. And when you look in the microscope inside, what you see is uh, some squarish, well-faceted uh, crystals, which have a micron size. So we are we are looking at those kind of those kind of crystals, and typically we put a, a small ensemble of them. So we look at an ensemble of these small crystals. But typical rare crystal would be something like uh, one centimeter long and maybe five millimeters like a kind of cube or or, or yeah rod of uh, five times five times times ten millimeters so it's completely different uh, size scale i see so yeah that's a uh okay so right so the uh if i made that uh how should I understand the uh, my next question? If uh, uh, so, uh, how uh, should I understand the Lorenzi Lorenzian uh, 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 shape of the absorption? Is it by Lorenzian? Uh, is that a, a random type of a collision type of a, a result? Or uh, no. So good question. Also. So the, the theory of line shapes uh, establishes that depending on the kind of line shape we observe in these um, emitters in solids, we have some sort of type of defects. And when we have what we call 2D defects, like dislocations, so a crystal with big strain and dislocations, we typically going to observe uh, Gaussian lines. 
And when, when we observe Lorentzian lines, we are more in a system which has point defects, like punctual defects, like, well, an ion here is missing or there is an, a vacancy somewhere or things like that. But it's to say the, the level of disorder is less when you have a Lorentzian line in general. So you have a better so crystal less, quality. Less than Gaussian in a way. It's less than Gaussian, yes. It's normally a Gaussian material is less uh, organized. It has more structural crystalline uh, defects. I see. Yeah. So I guess, you know, for this round, I'll, I'll just, you know, uh, the last question is, so the temperature mm -hmm. you're working at is the very low, right? So 10K and a 1K, is, is that? Yes. A... Yes, right. And the, so, so for, for the um so is isn't that a if you have so for me uh, uh i i tend to think that the organic uh environment like um uh like uh, uh the, the frame the you know uh the i'm just trying to see that uh, the what what causes the uh uh, how, how could you improve, even, you know, uh, better improve the, say, uh, so I understand the, you know, the lifetime, you know, and versus the line width is, is due to the uh, uh, kind of interactions with other neighbors, right? So, so uh, I guess I'm coming back to my first question, earlier question again, that uh, uh, are, are these due to the their environment that uh, that you can change and even better improve, maybe even you know also compared to other available, maybe the bulk, maybe they there there is better to control this these things. I don't know. Just a, I, I'm a sorry, general I question. I'm not sure I understood the question. It's about the temperature, or can you reformulate it? Uh, so yeah, so uh, I guess <laughs> uh, I didn't ask a very uh, coherent question. So the uh, when when in you, a main result is the uh, of the uh, the work is the uh, very high you know uh, uh, very narrow like uh, line width right line so, width yes 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 so so that's that means that uh, uh, it, it's the lifetime is long meaning that the, the, there's 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 the there's, there's lifetime yes there's there's because less interactions in a way. So I'm trying to see how does that relate to the environment for the, because yeah, environment, yeah, got, we are comparing got, okay. to environment comparing, you know, the molecular organic versus the crystal. So one seems that a crystal at temperatures, you know, same temperature seems one yeah. is more stable than the other. Anyway, so. Right, right, right. I got, I got the, I got the question now. So indeed, yes. So, so the, the language, or this lifetime is long, but it still could be could be longer. So it could be longer if we could reduce perturbations with the environment. And the, well, for, for temperature, uh, we we in the paper I then show in the presentation there is the temperature dependence that we could still gain if we go below. So we could go to mid-Kelvin regime and we still gain a little in reducing the interaction with uh, phonons, which is uh, interactions related to temperature to say somehow. But there is another contribution. This is also in the paper. It's not uh, what I presented today. The fact of having the high density 
and that you not not really of having the high density of ions, just of the fact of exciting many ions at the same time with what we do in these experiments, also creates perturbation. So those um, those ions which are excited, uh, this high excitation density makes that they still interact with each other. So that's also another um, thing we could uh, we could tune. Let's say we could tune it by either putting the ions farther apart from each other, slightly farther apart, or by reducing working at smaller ensembles or with narrower excitation or well, several things which could be done. And then we also have perturbations from the spins in the environment. So we have the uh, proton, we have well, carbons and isotopes, a little bit of spin. Here I'm talking about magnetic perturbations. So that would come back to the, to modifying the, the a little bit the atoms in the the ions in the molecule by chemical means. So let's say replacing or doing this isotopically pure carbon for the synthesis, things like that. So by this we would reduce magnetic. We always have three points to consider: so magnetic interactions, electric interactions, and temperature related. And these are the three things we could work on to to make the, the lines even narrower or the lifetime even longer. Does this uh, reply your question? Yeah, uh, this is a, a very, uh, I, I, I do see this as very, uh, you know, uh, has huge potential. I mean, this 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 field is fascinating. I, I guess, you know, if have more time, I will ask you how to get into this field as a computer scientist <laughs> or engineer, material engineer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, um, I don't know, uh, we've been going for an hour, but if you want to answer Frank's last question, I'm fine as long as you have a few more minutes left. Uh, I, I, I do have a, I, I, you know, I, I'm trying to get friends up the stage. I, I do see a few uh, uh, good friends down there, but I guess they're busy at this hour. So, uh, I mean, come, uh, all the friends in, in, the, in the room and the audience, uh, feel free to come up and uh, this is very, you know, interesting uh, research and uh, rare opportunity to uh, interact with uh, the, the the first hand you know, uh, creator of this research. So, by the way, I, I want to learn something about the uh, the um, so the memory part. So, the, so I understood partially of the uh, the comb and the I understand the spin uh, supposed to be longer because it's uh, uh, compared to uh, optical. Uh, since there are some sort of uh, selection uh, rule protected, right? So that once, uh, so why do you need two pits? Two, two, what is the two, uh, what, let me see the slides. Oh, the slides, uh, 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 I guess I just ask random questions now. So uh, 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 slides uh, number 32. You have two peaks, mm -hmm. and you, you you explained a little bit, but I I think I missed it. Could you uh, one a little bit more, spend a little bit more on this slide? So why do you need two for the? You have a plus and minus of ground states of spin half, and uh, so that's 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 what you uh, want to initialize to, and then you pump it up, and uh, with two, uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I guess, you know, no, I'm curious, I, I, so. I am, is this the initialization you're talking about? Is it? Yes, yes. yes. I, I am not, I know. Yeah, well, I, I am not surprised. This is 
uh, visually not so not so easy. Um, the, the difficulty here for the understanding is that we every time we manipulate the ions, we manipulate what we call different classes of ions. So since our ions have are an ensemble, let's say, and they have relatively different transition frequency with respect to each other. This is what gives us this inhomogeneous line. Um, then when we send our laser, we are actually interacting with several transition at the same time. So this makes the really the understanding of these figures a, bit, a little bit difficult because we see many phenomena simultaneously. And what we do here is we do remove uh, ions from two ground state levels for one class of ions out of nine. So the thing is, that's why the, the structure around is a bit uh, difficult. So you see there are two big holes. And what we prove here, so for the people who, who evaluate this work, is that the holes are very deep. So that's the 100% scale, which means that for these ions, they have really been fully removed because our material has become transparent or 95% transparent at that frequency. So it does not absorb light anymore. And this means the ions are somewhere else. They are stored in the level, which is uh, the third level, since we have three in the structure. But the, the, this third level is actually in the figure, but we see it is it's not so big. And the reason is because it's, it's, uh, we are only seeing one ion class out of nine. But um, it, why it's important is because when you really want to store a spin quantum state, you need your two-level system to be initialized. So two-level system. Here we have three three levels in the in the in the ground state. But for storage, you are going to use two out of the three, and then the third one is going to be a buffer layer. You're going to use like well when you need to 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 put things there for a pause sometime. Uh, but that, before any storage, you need to have the population in one of them, a single one of them. Otherwise. If you start to create superpositions, it's like doing nothing because in if your system is not initialized, you have as many ions in the excited state as in the ground state, and this is when it cannot work. In the optical case, this 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 is naturally like that because in the optical levels, the energy is sufficient to have everyone in the ground state anyway. But in the spin states, even at very low temperature, all these levels are thermally populated. So they are all populated. And then you really need to initialize them. To be able to initialize them means to be able to create this full transparency and so that the ions are somewhere else. And this is only possible because the population lifetime of this level is long. Otherwise, you could pump them, but immediately they would come back. And this is what happens in many virtual state systems. And that's also why we can create the comb. These combs in the quantum memory protocol can exist because, again, when you see the, the, the teeth is because there is ions which have been removed periodically at those frequencies for some time. And they then you can do your whole sequence for some time and the ions don't come back because the population is longer, you store them. As I know it's a bit difficult this part <laughs> to, to, to transmit the easy image of it. Yeah, so I think you did, uh, you know, uh, thank you for that, you know, uh, the good jobs for at least for me to get a, a little bit of uh, transparency, uh, maybe not uh, say 30%, 70% still opaque, but uh, so I, I do get the part, the, uh, the, the, 
spin the nuclear spin uh, ground states are uh, you know thermally uh, uh, populated uh, even at a very yeah. low temperature and uh, yes. so for yeah. your initialization you would need a uh, optical a pump i mean somehow uh, get those uh, up to you know move them away right uh, exactly. So, yeah. You, and they they stay there due to their exactly. Uh, long you move them lifetime. away, uh, uh, you want them to stay there where you put them, and this is what is not always the case. So when you manage to do that, is you say, okay, this material can do that, so it's, it's necessary for whatever goes afterwards to do to start by that. I see. Okay. Okay. Thank you for that. So it's. Uh, yeah, so this is uh, this is uh, you know I do I do see I can see that this is uh, I don't know if it's the, the, your figure I mean the, the, the figure married that here you 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 listed the five point five uh, five minutes is that the, the record holder is that the why nature you know uh, uh, becomes you know <laughs> so fascinated with your work so. I don't know how long are we looking at in the future. Well, uh, if, what, if you, is there an industrial? If you look at European in the very best uh, environment, like a best rare crystal you can find, then the spin states can live for 23 days. So you can put them away and they can stay 23 days. So we are very, very far from that in this case. We don't need that long either anyway. That's a, almost a curiosity. Uh, but uh, the spin states in rares are very, very long lived uh, in general. What was, I would say, why this paper was uh, highlighted is because the um, quantum, optical quantum state lifetime, these 10 microseconds, is between three and five order of magnitude longer than what you can observe in molecules. So it's it's that the main the main point, and is that which allows to do an optical frequency comb storage, which you could not do with a molecule, for instance, an organic molecule, and you can do here. But if we compare to best uh, bulk crystals out there, there is a big, big range from, for improvement, of course, but there is all the chemical engineering to start playing around and see how we can optimize and lengthen and so on. Got it, got it. So yeah, uh, yeah, I, I misspoken. Yeah, it, it is the optical that 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 uh, lifetime. You know, is is what the main achievement. Yes, here. Exactly. Yeah, I yes. got you. So yeah, the spin state. See, when you put it put it away, when you say uh, by days, you still need to uh, keep it in the uh, low temperature or no. Or the spin yes, is uh, frozen. No, oh, no, no, okay. you have to be at low temperature. As soon as okay. you increase in temperature, you start to have fast relaxation mechanisms. All these low temperatures. Right. So I guess the you know my last question for now is the uh, could you uh, touch upon mention a few, I mean maybe potential like uh, downstream collaborators. I would assume that with the qubits and the quantum computing. Uh, manipulations with, for example, spin and uh, I mean, I mean the qubits uh, 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 in that. 
you mean scientific collaborators in in here or like just just or? just in general the, the the i mean say in your application section of the paper you probably mentioned that uh you i mean this your new finding discovery can be applied or there might be potential interests in applying your um of course you you mentioned that this is a uh, it's a family, you know, there's already, you know, bulk crystal technologies, but the, with the the new um, molecular um, uh, microcrystals, I mean, say, easier to manipulate higher density, would that be yes, uh, okay. a draw, strong I, I, interest I from the user group? So there then? is, a, for, for, especially for, for quantum computing so when you want to do quantum computer you need quite some some qubits and in if you do want to do that uh, with optical transitions so through optical transitions it's not like we are not using the spin but using the the optical as access uh, the, the way it's approached in the worst community is by coupling to cavities, to optical cavities, and be able to manipulate single rotor clients. Let's say, so I have my quantum computer and I have photonic system around, and then I, I pump this ion, and then another ion is qubit number one, qubit number two, I make them interact and so on. And this is, uh, in practice, very, very difficult to achieve in bulk crystals, first of all, because these cavities have um, very small volume. so you cannot fit a bulk material in there at all. So you really need to go down to some nano or microsystem, uh, which by the way, we also try to do. It's another of our research lines with traditional crystals in, at the nanoscale. Uh, but in addition, you, if you wanna do these gates, uh, you would like to know as again, this goes back to this localization. So uh, the potential is more for scalable system so red crystals nowadays, when you work at single ion levels and so, but you, something is done, it's challenging. People work hardly on that, but you have one ion and it's very difficult to have one and then another one and then make them interact uh, with the cavity and everything. So we believe these systems are gonna a little bit reduce the technological difficulties of doing that. The principle is the same as with the red crystals, but the coupling to resonators is expected to be less challenging because like, there is a big community on single molecular spectroscopy and so on. There's, these materials are not obtained at very high temperature and this is a very big issue for when you want to couple these to photonic resonators because typically you need to heat your material to more than 1,000 degrees to get good properties and this will destroy your photonic structures. These molecular materials are obtained at low temperatures, so in that sense, there's no limitation on that. So it's, it's really in that sense, and be able to couple the system and then be able to control more than one ion and scale up to, to, to qubit, to a useful number of qubits, which currently is difficult with bulk systems, very, very difficult. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Frank. Yeah, I, I just want to say that's a, amazing, great uh, potentials. Uh, yeah. Uh, go ahead, Katerina. Yeah. Um. Yeah. My last question is um. So, what are you working on now? Like, what's next? Are you looking for more different um materials, type of crystals, or are you um, you know, looking into um, 
Yeah. So in, on this uh, particular project, uh, I well, there is um, material development ongoing on trying to customize a little bit more the molecular structure. There is also the project of looking at other world science instead of European, which uh, have a better wavelength for applications or which can have uh, the hyperfine structure, the spin states have higher energy, and this is better if you want to couple to superconducting qubits, for instance. So I would say both those are, are the main lines. So we're looking at at other rare science, uh, what we call the paramagnetic rare science, like uh, erbium, deuterium, which are another subtype of rare science. So European is a non-paramagnetic rare science. Uh, but those paramagnetic, uh, they are more easy to be perturbated even than the European. So it's, they are a bit tricky. Uh, they have to be handled very carefully. And then, yeah, they, they really try to to optimize the, the molecular structure, looking at to other molecules too. So we we already have looked at other molecules, and there is there are some which indeed perform much worse, others better. It's it's a huge uh, family of materials. So there is, there are too many things to consider and to screen a bit which which cases can be interesting, which not. So it's is really uh, the beginning, I would say. And there's other projects in parallel, of course, that I'm working on too. Yeah, that's um, that's really interesting and exciting. And just one last one. You said in some you can you can extend the time to 23 days. So are these uh, rare earth materials also uh, candidates for uh, batteries that you can, you know, we had the room about if you use a quantum battery system that you can charge like you know a tesla battery in like three minutes instead of like 10 hours so would these materials would they be candidates to use them for batteries but for you know very high um you know not for everyday use people but um you know for batteries where you really need to charge very very fast well, I, I, I'm, I'm not quite sure, I, but I would guess not really. It's, it's a very different um, property when we look at batteries of uh, energy storage. Then we, we don't have a power release in, our, in these quantum memories. We, we store quantum states, but for a battery, you need to store power and deliver power back. So, well, not at all my field, I have to say these batteries, but I would guess not, not quite. Okay. <laughs> thank you for um, clarifying that. And thank you so much for coming and taking the time to answer all these different questions. We really appreciate it. And we wish you all the best and a lot of funding for your research. It's really fascinating. and. If you have maybe um, one day like updates on your research that you have time to share, please feel always invited to come back. Thank you so much, Diane. Thank you. Thank you for the nice discussion. Bye-bye. Yeah, thank you, Diana. This is, we, our room usually have a more audience, but to, I guess it's 
due to the uh, particular hour. So yeah, I guess the, but uh, there's a replay and I, I think that your research will be greatly appreciated by our frequent audience yeah, and friends. Yeah, well, uh, thank you. Thank you for giving to discuss this and maybe see you in the future. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, bye please bye. do come back. Yeah, please do come back. And um, thank you so much, everyone, for coming. We have um, this week more rooms coming up um, um, on on Wednesday, we have Nick Hornart. He will talk about sea sponges and how they sneeze to dispose waste and some more marine biological research that he will share. And then on Thursday, we'll have Dr. Tarduno talking about the origins of the inner core structure of our Earth, which is paleomagnetism. And then on Friday, we'll have Dr. Valtteri Wickström um, talking about interbrain synchronization during online gaming when people are far apart of um they can still um their brain activity still synchronizes uh which is really interesting um so yeah thanks for coming i hope i hear you all back soon bye everyone bye Karina. thank you thank you for the uh organization of this uh, wonderful yeah Thank you, Frank, for asking interesting questions. It was interesting discussion to listen to. So thank you. See you next time. See you. Close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone.